This is Max Q, the podcast by Peabody's Launchpad office dedicated to demystifying what life is like after graduation. Every episode, we sit down with a recent alum to get their take on what life is like for working artists in today's world. Multifaceted careers, time management, finances, finding balance between your work and your life. We explore that and more on the Max Q Podcast. We're excited to open season four with a conversation with Andrea Copeland, a librarian, oboist, and musicologist. Andrea graduated from Peabody in 2019 with master's degrees in both oboe and musicology. Since then, she has built a career integrating her performing and gigging with work for research institutions and libraries, including Peabody's own Friedheim Library. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Max Q. We're really glad to have you here starting out season four. I'd like to just start out by inviting you to tell us a little bit about uh, what your life looks like right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my life looks pretty different than it did even a few months ago when I was working at Peabody. Um, right now, I am working uh, as the research coordinator at um, Ripham Database, which is based in Baltimore, uh, Maryland. Um, so I coordinate a lot of their outreach and social media activities. Um, we are just starting to build that infrastructure. And I work there um, not entirely full time, which is really great for um, everything else that I want to do, which includes teaching for ORCIDs. Um, that's something that's brought me a lot of joy over the past year. Um, taking on more writing projects, one of which is the open educational resource uh, that we're working on here with the Arthur Friedheim Library. Um, and another one is uh, sort of expanding my public musicology work to do more like pre-concert lectures. Um, I write a blog and so having like a little bit more flexibility to do that in addition to sort of keeping my oboe chops up has been a real gift. Awesome. Yeah. Part-time work is definitely a gift. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what your work was here at Peabody too, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was the outreach and instruction librarian uh, at the Arthur Friedheim Library for three years. Um, it is considered a professional position in the library field. So uh, when you become a quote-unquote librarian, you get a master's in library and information science, and then you work in a library. And Everything that you see happening at a library is usually done by um, people we call paraprofessionals, like our student workers. Um, and then the professional positions are a little more behind the scenes, kind of deciding the direction that the library is going in. And, you know, then the paras help us make that happen. So when I was here, I started an outreach program uh, basically from scratch and an instruction program basically from scratch. So that involved visiting a lot of the sort of liberal arts classes, music history classes, um, teaching people how to do research, but also how to understand where their information comes from. And that's something that we call information literacy. Um, so much like reading literacy or musical literacy, it is something that you can train and practice and really changes how you see the world. So I did a lot of teaching of some of those broad concepts that were widely applicable, and then also sort of made sure that we were visible on campus after, you know, a lot of years where we didn't even have a librarian in that position. So it was a fun, it was a fun job to sort of trailblaze, I guess. Yeah, wow. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious, was that something that you were seeking right out of graduation, a library position? 
So I was a music major, like most of us, as an undergrad, um, but got injured toward the end of my degree. Um, went straight into an arts admin position as an event coordinator for a performing arts center. Um, did not enjoy it. <laughs> Picked up a lot of skills I really um, have benefited from since, but um, it wasn't exactly my cup of tea. Um, there are only so many times that you can like frantically go on pizza runs for very famous people and like stress out about messing up the order and like enjoy your job. So uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, and then I had a friend uh, who I had freelanced with a lot say, hey, you know, there's an opening in the music library at your undergrad. Like you don't need a, an advanced degree. You just need to know how to read music. So really the more important skill is the sort of musical knowledge, knowing the difference between editions, composers, um, arrangements, things like that. Um, and at that point, I just sort of took a risk and interviewed for that job with no previous library experience. And um, because that job was at my alma mater, I got a staff tuition credit and got my MLIS because I really liked how I could sort of pursue my curiosity and also my musical interests in that role. Um, and then I was like a credentialed librarian, um, kind of simultaneous to that. Uh, I had started freelancing more and uh, getting back in shape, coming back from my injury. I had a really great teacher help me through that um, and kind of decided that I had unfinished business on the oboe, uh, hence applying to Peabody and coming out here. So usually I think people go through like, you know, higher education and graduate degrees and they're like, librarianship is a sensible plan B. Um, <laughs> and I kind of went the opposite way where I was like, I might as well pursue librarianship because I, you know, I can't play and I think I want to do this and then went and got more music credentials. So I was actually a a double major in musicology and performance here. Um, and then as I was getting ready to graduate, I just applied for a bunch of library jobs because I knew I was qualified for them. So that is how I got into my job at the AFL. Going back to, I think we were touching on this a little bit about the, you know, the happy accident of, of your friend talking to you about the library position. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious about how does creating that that network of people with whom you have contact with, and particularly I think for pursuing some of these new avenues, is there a way that you think about you know just keeping contact with people and how you how you think about growing your network? Just being someone who's easy to work with and competent does a lot of the work for one, <laughs> like as, as a just sort of like base philosophy. Um, I do put a lot of effort into keeping in touch, like just personally with friends. So when it comes to a professional network, you know, there are always opportunities to collaborate, I think. And so I find that sometimes I get too enthusiastic. I'm like, I want to do this and that and this and that. So then it becomes about selecting these collaborative opportunities. Um, well, can, I, can I poke in there and ask about how you select between opportunities? Yeah. Yeah. So it's easy to get enthusiastic and carried away just about anything. Right. Um, Cause there are so many good um, 
especially in Baltimore, so many like good artistic venues. Um, in terms of like assessing whether or not it's the right match for me or the right match for their project, I, I tend to think about, all right, if I am presenting myself as either a writer or a teacher or a performer, like what is going to make the most cohesive like package deal? And like, I think about that in terms of like public education. So like, yes, I teach oboe and I play oboe to a high level, but like so many people don't know what an oboe is. So that's kind of that through line there. So I've, I've had some opportunities to play for um, my good friend Sam Besson's uh, series in the Stacks. I know he was on the, the pod um, in previous seasons. Um, and so the oboe is like a vehicle to communicate some of these like lesser known artists or lesser known works or lesser known venues is really great. So I'm like, is it advancing like our understanding of either music or the musical canon? And that's probably the first question that I that I ask. Um, and then in terms of collaborators, I think people are pretty self-selecting pretty quickly. Um, if you get my drift, like if somebody is communicative and consistent and, you know, shows up to rehearsal or brainstorming session, like prepared, like showing up on multiple levels is so important and it's so clear when you're not. So I look for people who, who are present and organized and committed. And I, I think that makes my job relatively easy. I love the first half of that because I feel like so many people have a kind of like, I'd say the, the most typical thing I hear is the like the three-legged stool of like money, mm. people, piece or project. Hmm, I haven't right? heard that. That's oh, cool. you've never heard that no, before? Okay. No, I'm a, maybe I'm a bad business mind. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, I, that's often a, a metric that I hear, but the, what you've got there, especially with that first half about like, is this advancing our musicological, musicological knowledge or... I don't remember exactly how you put it, but that's that's so mission related. Yeah. And to me, that's so much more compelling because it seems like you've got, okay, this is what I believe is important in the world and I'm going to try and advance that first. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's the great thing about music, right? Is that it like every kind of music speaks to someone. And so it's about like increasing the probability that the music you're presenting is going to speak to someone or like maybe the thinking that you're doing about the music is going to speak to someone and that's just really cool and really fun you're talking about you're always having opportunities for connecting with people and finding these getting these offers for collaboration i think i also like because of the enthusiasm it's not like people are just like banging down my door like we need a public musicologist because that is not absolutely not the case um it is being kind of shameless in saying this is something that I can do can I do it for you whether it's talking at Shriver concert hall or with my current job um I kid you not I pitched my own position and I said I've spent the past three years at Peabody developing these skills I think you can use them to increase the public, you know, presence of your database to create instructional guides that can be used in the classroom because I've been in the classroom. And have you heard of this thing called social media? Um, so it's all, you know, and like Ripham does great work anyway. Um, but it is, um, yeah, it is, it is a little bit of shamelessness. And I think I used to be really worried about that or being perceived as thirsty 
or desperate or something. But when you do have that sort of like cohesive package of skills that you've been building, it's like showing up to like you're a handyman or woman or person. And like you've got your tool bag and you're like, look at my tool bag. I can like I can do things for you. And it like it all fits in the tool bag. And like sometimes it's the set of tools that somebody needs and sometimes it isn't. But you still have to show up and knock on the door and present the tools. I don't know. That's a really bad metaphor that I've <laughs> stuck with a little too long. <laughs> now I have to hear more, though, about about the process of proposing your own position, though. I pitched my own position. Um, so the the full name of RIPM is, it is Retrospective Index to Music Periodicals. In French, Repertoire International de la Presse Musicale. So... What that means is we collect um, and provide access to curated journals uh, from music history. So this, these are reviews, these are like jazz magazines, and they run the gamut from like this is an amateur like interest um, catalog to like this is the Capital News from Hollywood, and these are all the union gigs this month in LA. Um, so so it's a really interesting uh, research project fundamentally. Um, this database is subscribed to by libraries and schools of music and anybody teaching music history because they're these primary sources, meaning like they come straight from reports on musical events or events in the world, like World War II, you know, things like that. And, and these are documents like as immediately adjacent to that point in time as possible. Um, and anybody who's done any sort of paper writing or musical research or like endeavored to write a program note or educate themselves about what they're playing um, can probably relate to like finding, oh, how did people think about this piece of music at the time that it was written and performed first? Um, so, so that's like the fundamental research project here. And, and as such, they are a vendor at conferences all sorts of academic conferences. Um, so I go to the American Musicological Society meetings and I go to the Music Library Library Association <laughs> meetings. Um, so the two major professional organizations sort of in musical academia. Uh, there are many others, but those are, those are my two. Um, and so when I went to the Music Library Association uh, meeting last February, uh, I went to where they were tabling as a vendor and I reintroduced myself because I had had a job offer from them uh, when I was first graduating in Peabody and chose my Peabody job. You know, as we all do, there, there are a variety of considerations when you've got job offers on the table. Um, and I reintroduced myself like, hey, I'm three years on my career now. I've done these things. I like am bringing more to the table. And then I was able to say, you know, this this is the kind of position that ideally I'm looking for. I don't know if you could use some, you know, it starts with a small ask and then it kind of escalates. I don't know if you could use some consulting work on this or if you could use a part-time social media manager or maybe you know someone who could do all of these things and if you put together sort of this like dossier of needs that you can fill for a company or an organization they're like oh yeah actually <laughs> we do we do kind of need that and and I think enough nonprofits are small enough teams 
that if you envision like the value you can lend to it and, and sort of a way that you can do work that like feeds into itself without being so scattered in too many disparate tasks, then it kind of lends itself to writing your own position. Um, and in making this pitch, I was also like admittedly, like when you're on the job market, you're looking at other lists of responsibilities and sort of like competencies that you're expected to have. And so I have taken to just sort of pulling from those listings and thinking, well, that's a really cool thing I would like to do one day or in my dream job, I would love to, you know, sort of like copyright for donor, you know, materials or something like that. Um, so does that kind of answer your question? It's like doing a needs assessment and then pitching yourself as like the fulfillment of that need. Right. I, I was so glad that you used the word pitch too, because I was, it was yeah. almost feeling like, okay, this you know, feels like related to, to pitching a creative idea and writing yeah. a grant proposal in so many ways in terms of just like identifying the need and then creating the proposal and, and you know, showing how you can fulfill that you have the skills to fulfill that. So I, I love that, that connection. Um, one thing I feel like we haven't touched on completely is I feel like the idea of incorporating others and asking for help and mentorship. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how mentorship and asking for help has played into your path. I, I don't want to take this like too far off the rails. So please stop me like if that becomes a risk, but it has been like everything to me. And, and maybe at the beginning of the conversation, I made it sound like, I'm just wandering through the labyrinth and these, you know, hedges are opening and it's a magical portal to another job. Um, it mostly honestly comes from mentorship. Um, and I've been so lucky in that sense. Um, I think that like oboe playing is particularly like inviting of mentorship because it is it takes so much resilience to, you know, work through a read slump or, or to like deal with like that extreme learning curve of just like sounding like absolute garbage before you can like really feel like you're making music and singing over an orchestra or in a chamber group. Um, so, so oboe is a hard, a difficult instrument. And I think oboe teachers are really good at most of the time. The, the oboe teachers I've been fortunate enough to work with have been really good at, at just sort of um, being encouraging. And, and that's, it's like almost another parental role in a way. And, and that I view that as like part of mentorship too. Um, the next place where I've had a lot of mentorship is um, older oboe players, actually, and not specifically teachers, but people I've gigged with. Um, have always been really, you know, I, I ask them for feedback if I'm playing second because it's usually a safer ask than the conductor. You don't want to sort of like invalidate yourself and say, hey, how do they sound? Um, but with with somebody that you trust, like a colleague, you know, having like a, a grown-up, we call it grown-up studio class where we just like play excerpts for each other, you know, and then you get like feedback from somebody who you trust and has a different perspective on reads and philosophy and musicality and all of these things. And it's like getting their training in addition to yours. And it's also fun because, you know, it's your friend. Um, so, so I view like friendship and mentorship in, in sort of the freelancing and oboe world that way a little bit. Um, the other big 
area of my life where I've had mentorship, I guess, is the library world. Um, so my first boss um, was just extremely encouraging of me pursuing my MLIS, which was also somewhat difficult while working full time. Um, but you know, he was always quick to talk about the ways that it can be fulfilling to have this moment with a researcher where they're like, oh, I didn't know I could find that information or like, I can't wait to like look into this more or go back to this database on my own. So you just sort of like start them somewhere and then they just sort of like go on their own research adventure. And like the, the sort of the realization, oh, I never knew dot, dot, dot was probably like my favorite part of doing like very casual reference services in my first job of like, well, this is how you find a score in the stacks to, you know, my last job here at Peabody where I would spend like the best part of my job absolutely was like the 30 minute appointments that I had with students after meeting with them in a liberal arts class, getting them going. And then part of their grade was having a consultation with me. And then one-on-one, -on -one, we would just sort of like optimize their process for whatever their interest was. And like the sort of amount of information and resources like at their fingertips as members of the JHU community, like the enthusiasm with which they realized that was effing awesome. Like it was so good. <laughs> like, you know, I have a potty mouth, so I'm like, trying to read it in. Um, but that encouraging that, like from a practice standpoint, like what I do as someone who teaches someone else how to research was was a huge area of mentorship for me. Um, and then Kathleen was a massive influence just in my life. I mean, we know like how much she's done for Peabody and just sort of the musical world in terms of copyright. But one of the things she told me so early on when I was still a student here and wasn't even like working in a full-time capacity for her was don't be the one to tell yourself no, let somebody else tell you no. And so maybe that also leads into like some of my like networking disposition of like, if they don't need me, they'll tell me, but I can offer, you know, and I'm not going to tell myself no arbitrarily because, I mean, you know, that's many ways that's their job. I mean, don't be annoying, but. <laughs> what, one thing that I think has been an underlying thread here that I'm going to pick up is you do a lot of things. Yeah. We just talked about, you know, the, the, the MLAS while you're also having a full-time job. Mm -hmm. What is your process for keeping on top of all the things you need to do and managing your time? Bullet journaling with my tears. Um, I'm just kidding. No, it's not bullet journaling. Yes. <laughs> tears sometimes. Um, but I, okay, this is where I like almost took it off the rails before and I'm going to take it off the rails now. Um, I have always kind of been like, you know, growing up, I was the overcommitted kid. And like, as soon as I was on my own in college, I was like, I am the overcommitted high achiever. And then I came to grad school. and like, I am the overcommitted graduate student working woman, blah, 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 blah. And I think overcommitment and overwork is dangerous and pervasive in our world. Um, and especially in academia, it's really, really tough. And 
and I don't think we talk about it enough, um, but the way I want to talk about it here is um, sort of allowing more time for things than I think they're going to take. So you can optimize your calendar and you can be like, oh, it will take like 20 minutes to do this. Uh, but if, you should probably just double that time so that even if it doesn't take you 40 minutes to do that thing, then you have you know 20 minutes to get stuck in traffic or 20 minutes to eat a square meal or 20 minutes to like power nap, something that will make you do that thing better. Um, and so I think working, you have to be at your best to work at your best and it's really easy to overwork. Um, how I make time for all that is um, often by overcommitting and falling short. And I'm trying to say yes to fewer things as a result and just work better. Or that whole, you know, adage of work smarter, not harder. So that's, that's part of the job change is, you know, if 40 hours of my week are spoken for, where am I going to fit in these things that I feel really strongly about and I think could also be part of my career. They just need the time and attention to be good enough to be, you know, a viable academic, musical, whatever product. Um, I will also like just, here, here's the word again, I'm so sorry, pitch hard for uh, mental health care. Like if you have access to it, it is so valuable to have just an imp partial third party, like a therapist, um, listen to, to what you're going through because our world, like the currency of classical music is external validation. And that is really, really hard to deal with. And I think that like taking care of yourself in such a way that you can also have internal validation is really essential to being, you know, both a healthy musician and a, a healthy human. Kind of bring us towards the close. I'm curious if you have any things that you're watching or listening to or reading or mm-hmm. writing right now that you want to uh, talk about a little bit and give us a little taste of. Yeah, let me, there's a good book that I just picked up um, that I'm enjoying. Um, the Ethics of Ambiguity by Simone de Beauvoir. So I usually try to have like some philosophical training, like sort of on the back burner going on. And then I usually try to have um, a musicology book of, of some uh, sort going. Uh, my favorite musicological book is um, Just Vibrations by William Chang. Um, and I think that informs a lot of where I come from in terms of like how I think about music and how I pursue opportunities and talk about academia and overwork. And so I just can't say enough about that. Um, and then um, Jonathan Stern uh, actually has some really good writing out that is, I think, within the last calendar year about disability studies in music. And so this is one of like the leading uh, sound studies scholars writing about their own disability and interactions with the musical world and the heard world and uh, just sort of like barriers, both institutional and societal to like being a, a participant in musical activity and musical thought. So it's really, really powerful stuff coming out of the musicology world right now, I think. And then I feel like you've already given us so many gems, but are there any last piece of advice you'd want to offer to current students? 
just that Peabody can be a really difficult place, but it's a very special place. Um, and I think that like the hardest thing for me about sort of surviving in the world post Peabody has been building my own infrastructure for success, whether it's keeping my website updated or writing blog posts or like having social media content queued or whatever. And like, there are a lot of places at Peabody that can help you put that infrastructure in place before you leave. Um, one of them being Launchpad, one of them being the Arthur Friedheim Library. And I, I am not so far out of my job that I can't, you know, be a shill for, <laughs> for our amazing resources. And I think, I think that's unique because I didn't have those things coming out of undergrad and I definitely had them coming out of grad school and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And it makes it easier. Like even as I navigate these changes to like do it. Um, so yeah. Also read my blog. It's outwardsound.org. <laughs> well, make sure that's like 100%. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Andrew, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for chatting. You can find links to all of Andrea's recommendations as well as her blog in the show notes. Thanks for listening.